Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House. I'm Alejandra Campoverdi. I'm Darian Page. And I'm Johanna Masca. And we have a great episode for you guys today. We have interviews with former U.S. Treasurer under President Bush and member of 43 for Biden, Rosario Marin, and the Executive Director of the Lincoln Project, Sarah Lenti. But before we get to those, let's chat about last night's Republican National Convention. You know, I felt like we were living in two different worlds. It was, um, you know, the, the reality for that convention could not have been more stark than between that and the Democratic convention. I mean, it was, for what was billed as the hopeful, optimistic convention, it was a grievance-filled fest of dark and divisive language. That is 100% on the nose for how I felt watching last night, especially hearing from people like the McCloskeys. They just resorted to stoking divisions. There were lies being spread, misinformation. And it leaves the American people with the questions of who do I believe? Which side do I have to be on? And this, where we are in this country shouldn't be a place of which side am I on and more about how do we get back to what unites us and what brings us together and what helps heal this nation. And the party that we heard from last night said nothing to that. The president that we heard from last night spoke nothing to the true American values. He targeted his base, and that's about the only people that I think probably saw a positive outcome from that. I mean, the tone was so starkly different. And I mean, we're obviously, I feel like the headiness of the Democratic Convention is, is feels so far away now, you know, and all of these hopeful messages, because last night, I mean, the Hunger Games and the Purge were trending last night <laughs> oh after Kimberly Guilfoyle's <laughs> speech. And, oh my god! Can gosh. we talk about Can we that just for talk a about how much screaming I mean, she did? I like there was a part where I just had to turn down the volume and put closed captions on because I could not hear her screeching anymore. Well, and also the kind of things that she was saying, right? So I, the screaming, absolutely. But as a Californian here, and as someone, she was the former ex-wife of Governor yes. Gavin Newsom. She said, quote, Democrats turned us into a land of discarded heroin needles in parks, riots in the streets, and blackouts in homes. That was what she was talking about, California. I mean, it wasn't even like mincing words. No. She was just talking about... Democrats wanting to destroy this country. That was just a level of rhetoric that I don't know if I've ever seen in a convention before. Well, I have to tell you, sitting in California, that is not the reality that I have. As a mom in suburban California, my husband was almost like, you know, you, you really like should just take a picture right now of this view and be like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. To me, that was not the oddest speech. The oddest speech was from her boyfriend who appeared to be tearing up. And I was so confused as to what he would be tearing up about. It was- He, he was feeling very passionate about, <laughs> about the convention and the message of hope that they were sending oh. is really what it was. <laughs> I mean, preserving Western How could you not be hopeful as you talk about radical activists coming to take over your suburban communities? There's a lot of uh, debate right now about what might have been the cause of the tearing up. But yes, it was <laughs> definitely, definitely uh, a, a very intense speech. And where he literally called Joe Biden the Loch Ness monster of the swamp. Yeah. 
No, it was, it was, um, if this is the best that we have, uh, I think it's really troubling. And I think we've got, I mean, just starting out by talking about preserving Western civilization, this rhetoric is dangerous. I think the Washington Post called it a convention that was a fire hose of untruths. Well, because the thing is, it's it wasn't there was no platform, yeah. right? We already talked about the fact that they didn't present a platform, and he, I think Donald Trump Jr. laid out exactly what they want to um, contrast these two conventions. He said that it's church, work, and school versus rioting, looting, and vandalism. Which is this is like the false choice that they've created between the Democratic Party. You're either voting for church, school, and work. Or for vandals. That's the whole, it's completely false. And we're not talking about the very things that matter. The number of manufacturing jobs. No, it's fear, it's fear mongering. <laughs> it's fear mongering. And it's it's obvious, but I I shudder to think that it's kind of working for some oh, people. Oh, I, I know it is. And so to, to give our listeners the you know context so that they understand, we were actually seeing a decline in manufacturing jobs before COVID. So, you know, every time that he talks about manufacturing jobs, I think we'll get into this in our interview with Rosario, who's the treasurer who has some background in banking. But we saw a spike. We saw a sugar high in an economy that was built for growth. Now, only to have it crashing back down because it was given that sugar high. And all of us who are moms know that that sugar high ends in the crash. So here we had the decrease in manufacturing jobs. And as of July 2020, there are fewer Americans employed in manufacturing than before Trump took office. We've got, you know, like significant problems that we need to handle. And none of them are being addressed at this convention. Hey. So, Johanna, I want to ask you, because, you know, I, I don't have any conservative family members. So I, I kind of have a, I have an echo chamber here as far as people that feel the same way that I do. You talked to your family last night after all this, I'm sure, or this morning. Can you share with us some of what they said? Because I still don't understand how you can watch that and still feel in any way warm or fuzzy. It's not defensible. And my mom knows that. And it's a real challenge for her to talk to my specifically brothers about this because they feel very vulnerable economically. One of my brothers does work in manufacturing in the Midwest. And there is a part of the Republican party that we talk about later that has always stood up for international job growth, you know, really solving these problems and, and sending exports around the world. That is not the Republican Party of today. But the problem is because they've gotten so defensive that Donald Trump is making America great, you can't have a conversation sometimes without it just ending in collision. So, you know, what I've tried to do and what my mom has tried to do is find the real things that are affecting us and try to say, you know, this is what you have to be looking at because they are living in this chamber of Breitbart and Drudge Report and Fox News, and it's not true. And Joanna, I mean, to follow up with that, do you think that um, organizations like the Lincoln Project that we talked to a little bit later provide a little bit of support and cover for people who are vulnerable and aren't sure that the Republican Party that as it is now represents what they believe the Republican Party should represent? 
Look, we need enough of them to come out and vote in Ohio, in Minnesota, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in states that Democrats have to carry. And that's the reality is I am so worried. And I was on a text chain last night with more friends who have conservative family members who were talking about their conservative family members believing that Kamala Harris was going to turn off meat production in the U.S. and that people were going to lose jobs and they are getting misinformation that is just so divisive and so untrue that my friends are combating this constantly and they're going, no, no, no. And then on the other side, those who, you know, believed in Bernie, they they are getting it from whatever these forces are that, oh, you know, they're not going to solve anything. It's just going to be ordinary government. And it's like, we are locked in our homes because someone didn't deal with a pandemic. How about we get back to normal and then we expand this economy for everyone? It seems like there's a a big disconnect about understanding that because of Donald Trump's failed leadership, we have lost over 170,000 American lives, tens of millions of jobs. It's 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 not even a question. Well, those are the facts. And so, I mean, we're looking for some kind of plan from Donald Trump. We're looking for some sort of um, direction, a plan to get us out of this. And there's nothing. Well, last and night, there was nothing. I didn't hear. Yeah, I didn't hear anything last night. I'm going to be listening tonight. I mean, frankly, this is the first time I've been glued this closely to uh, the RNC. But I, I'm going to be watching and listening because like there has to be something. Well, we talk so much about compassion and empathy and coming off of the DNC. I think that we all really felt that all the elected officials and people who spoke at the DNC um, showed that. And from last night, I didn't hear anything uh, that any sadness, any sort of empathy for the people who have lost their jobs and the people who have lost their lives due to this pandemic. And that part was a stark contrast from what we saw last week. What did you guys think about um, the shout outs that were seemingly targeted on things like Opportunity Zones and HBCUs and, you know, like the, the kind of some of these which have now been proven to, you know, been misportrayed, even, you know, when we're talking about historically black colleges and universities, they were funded during the Obama administration and Congress actually approves that funding, not Donald Trump, but Donald Trump was given credit for this last night, right? I mean, it feels like there's a lot of checking the boxes that was going on last night. There was, it was kind of like the reading rainbow of different demographics and different races and different backgrounds and different issues, but none of it felt sincere. That's right. No actual solutions. Well, and it was, you know, talking about the cosmopolitan elites, I just was like, seriously? <laughs> I mean, again, it was, you know, trying to appeal very specifically to a certain segment of people to vote a direction that I'm sorry, like most of us who are moms in the suburbs, which he keeps appealing to us, we have our kids in remote learning right now. So I'm sure we'll get to it, but it's like, really? You think we can, you know, decide to vote for someone who couldn't handle a pandemic because we're so afraid of cosmopolitan elites coming from Kimberly Guilfoyle. The goal wasn't to bring more people under the umbrella. It was to target his base. And that's exactly what the first night brought. So there was something else that was pretty divisive this week that um, is not a policy issue. It was the renovation of the White House Rose Garden. And I know all of us have spent a good amount of time in that Rose Garden and probably have some thoughts about what was done. But I know for me, when I first started working at the White House, I, my first in my first role there, I worked in the West Wing. 
And so I would cross that on occasion. And I know for me, that was one of the moments that I felt the most awe of being at the White. It was that and walking out the gate at the end of the night. But crossing from the east to the west wing in the Rose Garden was one of those moments that, again, felt like it was larger than life and larger than you and larger than any administration because of what has happened there. And to see that and the history behind it and, and Jacqueline Kennedy's trees being uprooted, all of that was, I mean, I I share what a lot of the country felt in just shock and awe at how carelessly that was done. And to to your point, Alejandra, I just remember being in the Rose Garden during the different seasons, and you always knew what season it was based on what was blooming. And it was, you know, the twinkle lights in the trees during the holidays, and the tulips during spring, and the roses blooming, and those beautiful crab apple trees when they were flowering were just a sight to behold and it makes me really sad because it's so a part of the tradition of the rose garden and of the white house um, to be there and now it it doesn't hold the same effect i'm sure that once some of the flowers if there are flowers there are it's going to be beautiful the white house is always going to be beautiful but there was something taken away and it makes me really miss not only just people being able to be civil with one another in an administration that showed real leadership but the beauty of that space i think that's the thing right it's not one person's house it's america's house And you guys spent a lot more time than I did in the West Wing Colonnade, but that was one of the things about our jobs was that we could give tours to family members. And I remember giving that tour. And when you would walk outside to the Colonnade and stand there, there was just this heaviness that you felt of the many decisions that had to be on leaders' minds when walking through this orbit of power. And it has a very different feel, I imagine, without any trees or protection um, on that south side, which it seems an unusual decision right now during a pandemic that that's the first goal. But as I looked into it, it looked like it was about audiovisual, uh, some of the audiovisual renovations, because tonight Melania Trump will be uh, giving her address from the Rose Garden. Um, and I guess they did put in some significant upgrades for audiovisual out there. Well, you don't need to uproot tulips to put in some audiovisual equipment. And so I, I get that. And of course, renovations happen in every administration. But all the color was taken out. And call me crazy, but that seems to be a bit of a message that's ongoing here with this administration. All the color was taken out of that place. And now it's all white. Alejandra. That's all I have to say about that. Alejandra, you were definitely not wrong. Well, as we look at some of the changes that are being made, and we've talked a little bit about the difference between the DNC and the RNC, and now the changes in the Rose Garden, one person who knows very well about what the White House stands for and what it looks like under a Republican administration is Rosario Marin, who was the 41st Treasurer of the United States. And we are so lucky to be joined by her. So why don't we jump to the interview? Welcome, Rosario. I'm delighted to be with all of you. This is we are wonderful. Very excited to talk to you. And I'd actually like to start by asking what initially drew you to the Republican Party as a Latina who was born in Mexico and immigrated to Los Angeles as a teenager? 
So when I became a U.S. citizen and I was about to register for a voter registration, my uh, boss was going by and I asked him, and he was a vice president of the, of the bank, and he looked over and he said, Republican, honey, Republican. And I was like, okay, I, I, no question. I had really no idea the difference between one or the other, but I trusted him. He was my boss and I thought very highly of him and therefore what he said, if he would have said, you know, Green Party or whatever, I would have done it because it's a matter of trust. Uh, but that was the year that um, President Reagan was seeking re-election in 1984. And so I was uh, very proud of the things that he said and he made me feel welcome. He made me feel welcome not only to America, but to our party. And so I was I was at home. I was totally at home. And for the longest time I've been very involved with the party. Um, life has taken me in such different ways that I ended up being um, working for, for governors and became a council member and then mayor and when I did that I was uh, I met this guy that was running for president and he was the governor of the state of Texas. <laughs> yeah you know you are now you're a five-time Republican delegate right to the Republican convention we talked about that that's that takes yeah. a lot of work right to get to that level within the party tell me about that. So as a delegate, you know, the delegates are the people that have really drank the Kool-Aid, right? Uh, people that have worked, that have earned the right to be a delegate and choose the nominee. Thousands of people attend the convention, but really a few are the delegates. And it's an honor. It's really an honor. And so I had the privilege to be a Republican delegate for five uh, presidential candidates in, you know, Senator Dole, uh, President Bush twice, uh, uh, John McCain, and Mitt Romney. And that's uh, there. <laughs> so how does this Republican convention compare? This is not a Republican convention. This is one guy's convention. Let's just be clear. This has nothing to do with the party. It has everything to do with Trumpism. Absolutely. Now, I, it's interesting because... Speaking of the convention last night, there was a lot of rhetoric around immigrants. And I want to touch back on the, the Latino piece of it as a Latina myself who grew up in L.A. from Mexico is my family as well. There's was a lot of praise about the immigrant experience, and it seemed in such stark contrast from what Trump has said about immigrants and the ongoing vilification that has been coming out of his administration and his own mouth about the Latino community you're the only foreign-born treasurer of the United States. I'm curious, how did that kind of rhetoric and those policies influence your decision to not support him? So it, it goes to the first day when he was coming down on the gold elevator, uh, calling all immigrants and Mexicans specifically rapists and criminals. And I don't think anger was the word. You know, um, it's like, I had just served with President Bush, who embraced the Hispanic community, who embraced the Mexican community. And for this guy to do that, is, it was just very painful. You know, this is, not, this is not the party that even, I mean, Reagan made me welcome, made me feel welcome. And this guy was calling all the people I love and all the people I represent, and me personally. 
um, names that I wouldn't call anybody. And so uh, it was very painful. And to this day, still painful. To this day, this is not a party that I believed in, the one that I worked so hard for. But this is, to use his words, it is what it is. Um, no, no, there should be no surprise that just even in the last, what's this August, eight months, uh, the registration of Republicans has decreased um, uh, 9%. It, it, it's unbelievable. I, I mean, we've seen that trend, but just from the last few months, the number of Republicans, people that say, I am a Republican, has gone down. You know, I'm still a registered Republican because I hope, it is my hope, my my there's a glimmer of hope that maybe when this is all over and he is gone, that we can begin to rebuild our party. But you know what? If he not only has not brought the Republican Party together, I mean, if he cannot unify the Republican Party, how? How could he unify the nation? And as we look at, you know, the RNC and what is taking place this week, and we got to unpack a little bit of um, last night, we're looking at some of the speakers and the lineup of speakers include everyone from the McCloskey's who we heard from last night to Nick Sandman, the young man who had that viral interaction with Native Americans at the Lincoln Memorial. It's such a contrast from the DNC. What message do you think the Republicans are trying to convey with this? Um, this is a cult. This is a party of one and then everybody follows. This is not a party that is really embraced. This is not a convention that's embracing. For all the different people that wanted to and were told to say whatever, that's not what really is in their hearts. And that's just painful. Um, but uh, the message that they're trying to convey is specifically and it gives me the chills. You know, I listen to the McCloskey's and I say, wow, what, how horrible, how awful that they're saying that uh, the party of the Democrats want to destroy the suburbs. That's fear-mongering. That's just, wow. If that's what they have to go, and you know, from a political perspective, I understand that. You know, they're really not appealing to the bigger masses. They're they're desperately holding on to that shrinking percentage of Republicans, and that is just tragic. I can hear the pain in your voice when you're talking about this. I, I, it's something that a, a lot of us feel right now. And to that end, you tweeted out something very personal last week during the DNC. As a mother of a child with Down syndrome, seeing Biden's interaction and compassion with Brayden, the, the boy that struggles with a stutter, you said it made tears roll down your cheek. What message does that send to children around the world if we reelect someone like Trump who mocks those with disabilities and you as a mother understanding that? You know, there's, um, there's a big difference and some people may not understand it. There's a big difference between pity and compassion. We mothers and people with disabilities, all kinds of disabilities, know the difference. And when I saw um, Vice President Biden 
how he relate to 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 I'm forgetting his name uh, to this young man with uh, stutter, Braden. Thank you, thank you, with Braden. Um, it was I felt that I felt the compassion, the genuine feeling of let's help you, and 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 he did. You know, this was not a photo op. This was genuine. I can feel it. And so the message that we have sent by electing this president, you know, last time around, when we knew that he had mocked a person with a disability, the reporter from the New York Times, to me, actually, that was the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. When he did that, you know, I, I could forgive him for being anti-Mexican. I could even forgive him for being anti-immigrant. Uh, I could even forgive him for being anti-woman in, in the sense that, you know, as a person who was sexual uh, violence, I suffered sexual violence when I was five years of age, I could even look the other way and say, okay, he thinks that he can grab women's private parts. I could almost forgive him for that. But when I saw him mocking that reporter, I thought, what kind of a soulless creature could do that? No human being, no decent human being could mock a person with a disability. And this is who we're going to elect. Now that, that was also so painful to realize that people are so willing, and they were willing, certainly my colleagues in the Republican Party were willing to look the other way. Well, look where we have 180,000 people dead because somebody doesn't have compassion, because somebody doesn't care about the human suffering, because somebody doesn't care the deaths of this 180,000 well, we talked about just our children when we talked on the phone and um, I remembered because you were talking with such love in your voice for all of your children, but especially your child you still have at home. And and, and I told you the story about Nancy Ann DePaul in our administration, who was our deputy chief of staff, said, God gives you what you're supposed to have. And I, I just, um, I know the soul that you bring to this. I keep worrying, though, Rosario, that that he could be reelected because I have family in the middle of the country and they think that he's protecting them. They think that he's protecting the economy. And I mean, you're not an ordinary Republican. Your name is on the U.S. dollar under a Republican administration. So what what would you say to people like my family members who are still thinking of voting for President Trump? So I understand. I understand that some people have actually benefited from the economy. You know, look at the stock market. Look, I mean, it's going, it's going up the roof. That doesn't mean that Americans as a whole, not when we have millions of people unemployed. You know, let's just be fair. And I understand some people have benefited from this administration. I understand that. But at what cost? How, uh, how much is worth your soul? So you make $1,000 more, $2,000, $10,000, $1,000,000 more. 
and you're selling your soul for that and you're selling the souls of americans for that is that what money buys is that are you proud of that and uh, people may not understand when he took office the president had the greatest expansive economy it was a growing expansion he was growing, the economy was growing. If he did nothing, the economy was continued to grow. Employment was literally was doing its own thing. That was it. The test of the leader is not doing great things when everything is going right. That's not the test of leadership. The test of leadership is when things are going wrong, what do you do? And what, do you, what, has, what, has, he, what has he done when things have gone wrong? He bunkers. He goes to a bunker. What has he done? He has made a situation that was that worldwide, the laughing stock of the world for us. We three, uh, we have four percent of the population and twenty-three percent of the total deaths and twenty-three percent of the total uh, infections. That that's what his leadership has done. And so make no mistake, we need a real leader is tested. You can see what a leader does in times of trouble. Well, we know where we are right now. And so the people that may still harbor some feeling, well, uh, he's been very good for the economy. He might be good for some people. We know that. And you're right. And, you know, we talk a lot about the soul of America, and you speak with such conviction. And you said that you're still a registered Republican. I know that this party doesn't reflect the Republican Party that you believe in. So what do does the Republican Party need to do to get back to its core beliefs and its values? When we lost uh, the election um, eight years ago, the RNC uh, put together, uh, I, I forget what they called it, the most postmortem, uh, very fitting uh, title. You know, they, they, they kind of evaluated what, what, what the party was, where was the party, what did, what did we do wrong? And there were many things that were wrong. Well, when he got into office, instead of following that, all the advice, all the recommendations that were written, he trashed that, he put it away, and started doing his own thing. Well, look where we are now. Look where we are as a party and look where we are as a nation. The party is gonna to have to do some real soul searching and realize that the party cannot continue to be the party of this guy. Speaking of folks that still support President Trump that just boggle the mind, I want to bring it back to Latino community because the conservative Latinos that support Trump right now, after all that he's said and done, it just, it confounds me. And you served in President Bush's campaign as liaison to the Spanish-speaking community. What does Biden's team need to know about connecting with the conservative Latino? Well, so conservative... Uh, I think people have the wrong idea of what conservatism is. It is not conservative to, to uh, do deficit spending the way that he has done. He criticized uh, President Obama for doing some of that. Well, he has done that, multiplied that by 100, okay? Uh, conservatism has, is not uh, nationalism. Just the opposite. It's being part of the, the world, is leading the world. 
is not hunkering down in our little hole. That's not what conservatism is. Trade, for crying out loud, trade. Uh, the conservatives believe that a strong trade will bring in more uh, jobs and, and, and improve our economy. Uh, he has done exactly the opposite. So those conservative leaders that believe that they are conservative, that what he's doing is conservative, need to learn what true conservatism is. L need to understand that going down this path is not, it's neither Democrat, not, not Republican. It's his own thing. You know, and, and this is a party of one. And the only voice that he listens to is to himself. So uh, conservatives across the the a nation need to understand that they may say they're conservatives, they're not conservative. But just conservative Latinos specifically, what message do you think would be effective in messaging to them for the Biden campaign? Yeah. So, um, you know, there, there, is a, there is a number of uh, people that not just drank the Kool-Aid, but they took the entire jar and bubble it down, okay? That, that there is nothing we can do about those. I don't even try. I don't even intend. But there are a number of people that we can actually bring forth. And we just give them examples. And we contrast uh, one versus the other. And you can, let's just talk about Mexico. Okay. The Cuban experience is different. So let me just talk about it. And there's a, a number of Cuban Republicans. And they call themselves conservatives. And, and I understand that they're not. But let's talk about Mexicans. If there are some Mexican Republicans out there, well, hasn't he insulted us enough? Hasn't he insulted our intelligence? Uh, what part of conservative or, or conservative thinking tells your neighbor, I'm going to build a wall, but you're going to pay for it? So now we know the wall is not being built, and certainly Mexico State from day one, we're not going to pay he brought in uh, the president from Mexico for a photo op just very recently. And just last week, he continued to talk about criminals and Mexican uh, criminals and, uh, and the wall. So, okay, Mexicans, how, how can you possibly vote for this guy? If we reelect him, you know it's going to be worse. You know those children in those cages? It's going to be worse. You know, I, I learned that they had to raise their hand at the, in the White House conference to, to ensure that when they were going to separate families, uh, everybody, everybody raised their hand. Everybody. That to me, is, is this really what we, what we want for the next four years? And as Latinos, you know, uh, give me a break. How can you even uh, justify what cannot be justified? Exactly. It's like America, well, and America is supposed to be that beacon of hope around the world and stand for the values, right? But it's, it's, it's so hard, I think, for all of us who have seen the White House up close to see this president so hijack one party. And I guess it leads me to question, does the two-party system that we have right now, is it actually working for the American people? Well, 
um, you know, at the very beginning, we had all kinds of different political parties, right? And somehow, by attrition or whatever, we end up literally just two. It's it, it's either one or the other. That's it. All the other parties that exist, they don't have a chance. Um, I I would hope, you know, we benefit. Democracy benefits when we actually have real debate, when we actually have uh, uh, a number of ideas. We can debate them and let the best idea, let the best argument win. Fortunately, we don't have that now. Unfortunately, what we have is uh, one guy's idea and then a whole platform. Um, and I'm just really hoping that as the Democrats uh, continue on their quest for, for, for the White House, that they really welcome all the different ideas. And, and you know, we Republicans know. We Republicans, we are not going to hijack the DNC or the platform, but we would like to have a seat at the table. You know, let, let's express our ideas. And I believe uh, President Biden will welcome those different ideas. May not agree with them. And I understand that at least we will have a voice. Right now, there is no voice on the phone. There's one voice. Well, what? you have you have done everything to deserve that seat at the table. So <laughs> we are we are very grateful. I know that um, I am going to look for uh, the dollars that still have your name on them. <laughs> Plenty of them out there still. Yes, your your voice is so important on this, and your bravery. And I just want to thank you for being here with us today and everything that you've said because that is it's not a small feat for someone as. Um, prominent as yourself to come out and say these things, but it's so important to your point for the future, for our families, for your son, all of us. You know, I want to be able to look at my grandchildren now and say, I did everything that I could. No, I want to be able, and I do, I fall asleep at night peacefully. I fall asleep knowing that I can the best that I can. I love this country. I love, I am grateful. I am profoundly grateful for all the opportunities that I was given. And like, so I want to have those opportunities to everybody. But we look at what we have right now, and that's not possible. And so um, I will do my part. And we will do ours. Thank you, Rosario. Thank you, Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Bye. That was a fascinating conversation with Rosario. I thought that the pain that she's experiencing by seeing her party be led a direction that she doesn't want it to be in is something that I think is so familiar for a lot of my family members. And so, and yet unfamiliar with, for those who have not yet heard those kinds of words, that it is acceptable to leave what used to be the Republican party. You're right, Johanna. You could feel the emotion in her voice. You can tell that she feels so passionately about her party and her people and her family and that she just wants to protect them. She wants to create a world like us that is better for our children, not worse. And she sees that the direction that we're going now isn't going to lead to that. So I just felt like what she was saying was so powerful. Well, and it was obvious that it wasn't easy for her to come to that. Like this is a woman who 
checked the box. Like she remembers when she checked the box to be a Republican right after um, she was became a citizen. And so this is someone who does not take going against the Republican Party lightly. And she ticked through, you know, uh, I could deal with voting for him as a woman after what he said as a woman. I could deal with it as an immigrant. I could, but I couldn't deal with it as a mother after what he said about folks with disabilities. And so there's just, you could see there's so many different layers here that she just could not keep silent anymore. And, and I respect the fact that she's probably getting a lot of blowback, but president Trump has essentially, and his administration has almost attacked every part of who she is. And so what, what, what other recourse does that leave her other than to use her voice, which is a very, very powerful voice to stand up against him. And, I'm glad personally that there are now organizations like the Lincoln Project that we're about to talk to that are able to provide a, a community and a coalition of folks that can all raise their voices together. Because having heard her talk, I have a feeling that she would have been using her voice anyway. That is a strong, strong that woman. That is a strong woman. But together with others that are like-minded, that's even more powerful. Absolutely. I mean, I want to hear from Republicans this week because it's just fascinating to me. So let's get right into Sarah. Sarah Lenti is the executive director of the Lincoln Project, a political strategist and policy advisor who previously served as director of the National Security Council under Condoleezza Rice. Thank you for being with us today, Sarah. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. There's a lot of news coming out of the Lincoln Project right now, especially during the week of the Republican National Convention. But first, in your words, I'd love if you could talk us through what the Lincoln Project stands for. Sure. So the Lincoln Project launched back in December uh, 2019, and the entire purpose was to defeat Donald Trump and Trumpism this November 3rd, period, end of story. It's a bunch of um, current and former Republican strategists that have worked on campaigns for decades jointly. And really uh, the, the goal was to move Republicans in key states, key battleground states to either sit it out this time and not vote for Trump or to actually cross the line and vote for the Democrat, in which case it's, it's uh, Biden. So that's the name of the game. I can imagine with your background that you getting involved in this role must've been pretty surprising to your peers and friends and family. What was their reaction? My parent, my sisters love it. They're they're conservatives themselves, but um, like one of my sisters for sure is going to vote for Biden. She worked in the Bush administration. Um, my parents don't understand. They don't get it. And I, on the flip, don't understand how they could watch the convention that was last night and not see how these people are literally like they're losing their minds. That is not the conservative base that I grew up in. Uh, ne neither me. So my whole family are conservatives. And I okay. came out and worked for President Obama as a Democrat. And as a Democrat, you know, I saw last time around Republicans say that they weren't going to stand for this. Of course, you know, Donald Trump yep. had a number of Republicans. And, you know, George W. Bush is not even part of this convention. How is this time and what you're doing on the Lincoln Project going to be different than last time? So meaning in 2016? Yeah. Well, and, and even impeachment, right? Like George Conway was, you know, out for impeachment. I know that he has since taken a step back for family matters, but how is this effort different mm -hmm. for this election? Well, we didn't have this effort in previous cycles. We've ne there's never been an effort of Republicans joining together and saying, we're going to actually endorse 
the other candidate and actually working actively to make sure that Trump is not reelected. So this is new for us, truly. Um, it's new. And there's this interesting piece of it because all of you guys banding together, you know, there is the strength in those numbers and also the cover and the kind of protection in those numbers. And that's something that you said, I want to quote you. You said, quote, the goal is to talk to voters in these target states in ways that give them cover, help make it okay for them to sit it out or actually cross the line and vote for Biden. So what does give them cover look like? Why is that so important? Yeah, so I think it, it it's a lot of things. So at the state level, it's um, and we're doing this in in eight targeted states where we're going out and we're finding um, Republicans that are known entities in their state. So they might be former um, Republican Party chairs, it might be former state senators, it might be former governors that are actually going out and speaking to the people in their states and saying, "I'm voting for." Biden, because I think when other Republicans hear other Republicans express that they're going to do this, like Jeff Flake, it, it then becomes more palatable. It becomes okay. And I think when they're seeing this messaging from us, you, you know, we have ads constantly in these spots. I, I think it it reinforces what they know in their heart and in their mind, and 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 it's giving them, you know, the courage to say, "There's this whole group of people that feel the same way I do." Therefore, it's okay, this cycle. It doesn't mean you, for the rest of your life, you're going to vote Democrat. This is a, this president is an anomaly. And so you're also um, launching new partnerships that are targeting younger voters, such as the one with Meme 2020. Um, how do you think that your method is reaching out to voters that the DNC and the RNC haven't really been able to touch? So I, well, I think our messaging um, in terms of like the DNC um, we are extremely hard hitting on Trump and it's somewhere that they haven't necessarily gone. And I think that is appealing to many in the younger demographic. I think that the meme 2020s, this was new for us, right? So they are, um, there with the Jerry media media company on Instagram and, you know, they came to us, there were not usual partners, right? But we have the same goal in mind, which is, um, to make sure that Trump isn't reelected. Um, and so by, you know, we're as Republican strategists, are, we're not Instagram experts. So it, by partnering with them, we're able to get eyes on us that wouldn't normally. I've, I've seen some of their memes. They're, they're really clever. They're clever. And then we hired a new person on our Instagram to do our Instagram stories. It has just taken off and he's hilarious. And so it's a whole nother um, you know, everybody uses Twitter and Facebook, but the Instagram model is, is new for us. And it's, I think it's proving to be effective. And, and again, we want to move that younger, younger demographic, which is so hard for both parties, any party to do. So it's a new, we're exploring this. It's an interesting tactic for sure. Mm -hmm. And you guys have been so effective at that as well as your viral negative campaign ads that have really made a name for your, your effort. And I know you've said that part of the reason you've been taking that tactic is getting into Trump's head and trying to trigger him. So why has that been such an effective strategy with President Trump in particular? Because he, he, back in the art of the deal, he, you know, it was very clear that 
all press, like everything's about press and how he looks and how he comes across and how people view him. And he doesn't like it when people call him out. He doesn't like it when you speak the truth and, and, and we are speaking the truth. So I want to go back and say, we're not doing negative ads on Trump to go low to, because you know we're doing it because we, we are trying to highlight the truth and the, the corruption of what is his administration and his failure to lead. So when we do these ads that are hard hitting on Trump and we put them on Fox News in DC, it drives him nuts. And, you know, he went out after we put up Morning in America and started a tweet storm. And then, you know, he just completely for the next 12 hours was obsessed with that. Every time you're obsessed with that, you're not messaging to your base, right? You're beating up on the Lincoln Project. You're raising us $2 million. I mean, so that it, it, it's, um, it distracts him. In a lot of ways, you're almost using his own tactics against him. And especially, I mean, we're seeing what's what's trending this week during the RNC. And, and what is your approach during this week in particular when you have all of this, I imagine, clippable speeches that are popping oh, up? my. Yes. Yes. So we have, we have a rapid response team that's working on taking some of the, what we saw last night and what we'll see the rest of the week and, and putting out videos that will probably go viral. And it's not to make fun, but it's to show the lack of substance and their anger. And they're screaming at the base. They're screaming about um, this, you know, the suburbs and how Democrats are going to abolish suburbs. They're screaming about how's low income housing going up in suburban neighborhoods. And they're intimating that it will be people of color that are moving into the, like the whole thing is just, it's bad and it's got a racist tone to it. I don't, I've never seen anything like this. And it's like just this. not true. I've no, never <laughs> seen anything like this. No. I and know. The, and they're definitely screaming. One of those speeches last night was right. Oh my. quite a lot to take in. Well, as you um, spoke about raising money and being able to quickly um, do it um, in a rapid response, you were able to raise $16 million in Q2. So that is really exciting. But what do you say to the Democrats who might be a little bit skeptical about the tactics saying that they don't go far enough to implicate the GOP in Trump's rise? to power what would i say to the democrats that that aren't going far enough that say that your messaging isn't going far enough well we're not out trying to message to democrats we're out trying to message to republicans and independents i think people get that confused A, a lot of democrats love who we are and that's great and thank you but um we're trying to move three to four percent of independents or Republicans that voted for Trump in a 2016 cycle, which is less than 78,000 people, and so three percent, three to four percent of those 78,000 people to vote for Biden or not vote at all this cycle, or write someone in. And if you do that, Biden will win in these key states. Well, and so that's a question. My family, because they're in the middle of the country, lost manufacturing. You know, there there is an anger there, and they've been upset with the establishment in general. What is it that you're saying to them, you know, because obviously President Trump was supposed to be the antidote and he has not solved their problems. So how are you connecting with voters like them instead of traditional voters that you're looking for? You know, there are certain voters like my parents who live in Richmond, Virginia and are Christian conservatives and vote on the life issue period who are never going to move. I mean, I think they want to move, but they feel so um, convicted in their beliefs and that's fine. But there are other Republicans out there who are hurting, who are watching 
in, in, in states, they're watching the effects of COVID. They're watching people lose jobs. They're watching his dearth of leadership through this whole thing. Last night, the RNC, they acted like COVID wasn't even a thing. It was kind of like what, I don't know what land they think we're living in, but we're going to be close to 200,000 deaths over that by the time um, the election hits. And that's, that's unbelievable. It's unbelievable in less than a year. And I think that what we're seeing it, with these Republicans and independents, it's that messaging on COVID and the economy and the lack of leadership, which is moving people. It's that message in certain states and certain key demographics. It's te- it tends to be a more educated suburban voter that you're seeing make this move. Well, as we saw last night in the first night of the convention, there were a number of speeches and a lot Mm -hmm. of things that we will have to unpack. But I want to know just off the bat, as a Republican, was there anything that you saw in the RNC last night that gave you hope? No. No. I I thought that might be the answer. I was curious what you were going to say. I mean, you know, Nikki Haley coming out and uh, like that was supposed to be the hope, right? There's nothing in there that I, I mean, no, I didn't. And in fact, I was really shocked to read that they are not releasing a platform. Yes. Okay. So my dad's biggest argument with me is it's about policy and I'm, and I, there is no policy. There is no platform. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Right. And so now it's like, well, you don't want to be a socialist, right? So what do you say to Republicans who accuse you of supporting socialism? I am not supporting socialism. I am supporting, I'm a single mom of twin boys. I I take, you know, the office of the presidency is the highest office in the land. It is the beacon of light for other nations. I want, if I had to choose who my children model their behavior after, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, who's gonna care for this nation, the choice is very, very clear. Let's also be clear. This country, we are not gonna become a socialist country. This is crazy talk. There is a very small wing of the of the Democratic Party that is that wants socialism. There's also a very tiny wing of the Republican Party that is is the Ku Klux Klan, right? I'm not gonna say that all Republicans are a part of the Ku Klux Klan. It's not fair to say that all Democrats are socialists. If you think back through administrations, Reagan, Bush, Bush, Clinton, you know, Obama, think about it. You know, if you're a Republican thinking about the Obama and Clinton administrations, what did they do that really wrecked or ruined your life? Same with if you're a Democrat and you're looking back on the Bush administrations, what was it? It's all shades of gray at the end of the day. That's why you have checks and balances in the House, the Supreme Court. I mean, Congress, the Supreme Court, uh, the executive branch. It's it's just crazy. Joe Biden, the country is not going to become so, a socialist country under Joe Biden. He's trying to get this nation back to good. We're in a pandemic. Also, I feel like I'm in an alt-universe. Last night, listening to Trump talk about the China virus, and previously he was touting his relations with China and President Xi. So, like, which is it? Are they your friend? Did they give us the, but like, it just, it's, it's absurd. And then I dropped my kids off yesterday to remote learn for kindergarten. And, you know, this was supposed to be a big day in our lives. And there they are with their masks in their, you know, like we had to get these plastic tubs to put all their remote learning and Chromebook. It's just, it's, this didn't need to be like this. I completely understand. I'm going through it with my kindergartner <laughs> and my first grader oh, as well. I get I, it. 
It's crazy. Well, if we're going to get back on track, it feels like we really need all hands on deck. And we really enjoy talking to you about this and really um, coming together to try to figure out how we all move forward together positively from this. So thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, we'll be watching. We won't have any any excuse to not watch because you'll be going viral. So (laughs) that's so true. Well, thank you so much, ladies. It was so fun. Okay, thanks. Well, that was quite the conversation with Sarah, and we appreciate she and Rosario being on and sharing their insight and perspective on the Republican Party and where we are now. What did you ladies think? They are, you know, it reminds me of Megyn Kelly when she talked about sometimes you feel like during this administration, you're just shouting into the wind. My hope is that this time you know, that shouting into the wind is actually very effective and especially in those target areas. And I know, you know, it's part of the strategists all getting together will help um, actually focus that shouting in the wind. Uh, But it'll be really interesting to see, you know, slowly but surely all these people keep coming out. So I don't know if you guys saw Michael Steele had just come out as part of the Lincoln Project. He was the former executive director of the Republican Party. He came out as part of the Lincoln Project right before our interview. And I think that having these conversations and people using their platform to provide cover for other Republicans who might feel a little bit vilified by their own party if they speak out against Donald Trump. Donald Trump doesn't represent the Republican Party that I know of. And so I think that anytime that there is space and cover and protection for people to speak out, it's kind of like what Tina said with the Time's Up movement. Once you start combining these voices and saying, this is not okay, we are not okay with this president and the sort of rhetoric that he spews, that gives people the ability to feel comfortable and braver and emboldens them to step out against what he's trying to do to our country. And let's be real that a lot of the folks that have come together in the Lincoln Project, they're really good at what they do, which are these viral negative ads. They're really good at these memes. This is something that has traditionally been used against the Democratic Party. But now we're seeing folks come together with all of these tools and these strategic media tools. And so they're really bringing something to the table here because they're they're as I mean, frankly, I don't see us running ads like that as a Democratic Party. That's where the go high party, right? And, you know, they're not afraid to really come out with the blows. They know how powerful those can be. And they're using them to her point. I think what she said about triggering him and knowing that reading his book and knowing him so intimately, these are folks that know Trump. They know people like Trump. They work with these folks. So they're especially, um, especially suited to be able to wage the kind of media campaigns that could be very effective right now. I just worry because I do totally see the point of triggering Trump. I just worry about those people who are hopeless in the middle of the country and talking to them. And I'm I'm glad that they're doing that job so the Democrats can focus on talking to the people in the middle of the country who are desperate. Well, exactly, Johanna. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, every, we need all these different tactics. This is not going to be an easy campaign, as we all know. This is not going to be a shoe-in. We're a very divided country. 
And Democrats need to be making the point for the policies and the platforms and the people that they're going to protect and stand up for. But, you know, I'd argue we also need folks who are going to be able to have those viral campaigns that are going to cut through the noise and really show the clips. So show the reality of the mistruths that have been perpetuated by this administration. And I think, you know, on that note, uh, we do, we have to figure out, you know, after we get through this moment, um, which is getting sooner and sooner, uh, early voting is going to start next month in some states. Um, you know, after that moment passes, we just have to figure out how we bring all of these coalitions together. And I think, you know, those of us who know Joe Biden so well know that he has been that person who's tried to bring those coalitions together. So my hope for people who are listening um, is that they are, you know, looking at both the cover, the opportunity, and know that we aren't a bunch of socialists. <laughs> it's like, what scare tactics do they, I mean, truly, it's like when we were walking along and I'm thinking, here they're out there calling Democrats pedophiles. And it's like, really? No, I'm sorry. We're on the PTA. We're your neighbors. We are not a bunch of socialists trying to wish this country harm. The speeches that we're hearing now are so divisive, and they talk about radical activism and protesters taking over communities and just speak to everything that Donald Trump has said will happen to America. They, it is fear-mongering. It is the vilification of immigrants. It is stoking anger, and they're doing it so loudly and so boldly. They're unapologetically his base. And what we have to do, like Johanna said, is find a way to be that party that is a big umbrella that's able to bring people together. And it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, or if you're a liberal or conservative to um, kind of paraphrase Barack Obama's 2004 speech, you know, we're one country that's united. And the more we're able to touch on that and dig deep into what our values are and who we are as Americans and, you know, just humans in general, you know, the better we are as people, as a party, as communities. And what we saw last night from the RNC doesn't display that. No, it's like America's party or Donald Trump's party. And it is like they found those one stories, right? Alejandra, I'm sure you are. No, I, you know what? I feel like it's a, it's America's party or Donald Trump. That's yeah. true. <laughs> That's how it feels. That's how it sounded to me. And you know what? I'm going to be listening for the next few days as well. But that is, it just felt like it was a Donald Trump parade. Yeah. And that, I mean, maybe that'll win some people's hearts, but that's not unifying our nation under a common purpose. That's not what is going to bring us back better, to quote someone else. He didn't get his military parade, so now he gets his RNC parade. And so now we'll do our POTUS of the week. And this week it goes to moms across America. We know that you are sending your kids back to school this week, whether it's virtual or in person, and we know it's been challenging. Trying to homeschool your kids over the past couple of months and into this fall is not without difficulties. So we are thinking of you and we send out all the good vibes to you. Absolutely. And on Wednesday, August 26th, as we celebrate Women's Equality Day, we know there is so much at stake for women this election. Early voting starts in some states as early as September. So make your plan to vote now. Take your friends. We're challenging our potuses, all of you, to get 19 of your friends this week to text VOTE 
to 30330 so that we can get America's women voting. And next week, ladies, do you realize it's our fourth episode? We're wrapping up our first whole month of Pod is a Woman. That went super fast, didn't it? We're (laughs) so excited that you guys, we're so excited that you guys have been listening and following along. We read all your reviews and we really appreciate it. So just encouraging you again to reach out um, to all of us on social media. Shoot us an email on beapodis at gmail.com. And we will be with you again next week. Celebrate one month.